Hello, and welcome to Commendable Commotion. I'm Matthew Tanamelji, and I'll be talking to some fascinating people about some equally fascinating topics that need more commotion. Today, we continue to look at filmmaking, a craft that contains many creative and technical components that are often not talked about. I recently had a chance to talk to Andrew Wass, a filmmaker and former film student who created and co-hosts the podcast and YouTube channel Second Rate Film School. Andrew is a former film student who likes to use sarcasm and humour to take a deeper look at well-known and obscure media in equal measure. Second-rate film school is a perfect place for this, with all sorts of commentaries on your favourite films and interviews with the people behind major film and television productions. Andrew also runs AWOS Productions, with plenty of excellent projects under that banner too. I'll be talking to Andrew about how he got interest in filmmaking, how he set up second-rate film school, and some of the amazing work he's done. For example, you'll hear about Andrew's interviews with some of the crew behind extraordinary films such as The Blair Witch Project, the once-lost Nickelodeon film Crybaby Lane, and more. So, without further ado, please, enjoy the show. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, I've seen the great work you've done. So, basically... You know, before we talk about second-rate film school um, and your films that you've made, how did you get into film? How did you get interested in the craft? Well, first, I just want to say thank you for having me on. It's um, very weird to be on the other side of the interview, so this will be fun. Less ending for me to do. Um, no, so, you know, like a lot of people who do this, you know, I was obsessed with movies growing up. Um, you know, I saw Back to the Future for the first time. I actually figured it out very recently, um, May of 1998, saw it on TNT, just fell in love with that movie. I'm like, I want to do that. And, you know, throughout, like, being a kid, you know, I would use my parents' home movie camera and make stuff, you know, just little crappy little short films that's embarrassing to look at now, but nothing too crazy. Um yeah, I was known in high school as like the movie guy. I always had my camera with me. I was always taking pictures. Like I took like a third of the photos of the yearbook my senior year, like of the candid shots and all that. And, you know, again, I would make commercials for like the school plays. I was in the drama club and whatnot. Um, and then I ended up going to um, Ithaca College. Um, that's in like upstate New York. Um, they have a great film program there. And over my four years there, I made a handful of short films. I mostly was making broad comedies. Um, you know, I love Mel Brooks, like the National Lampoon movie, stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, moved out to Los Angeles, where I've been, you know, for six years now. And, you know, after moving out here and working here for a while, and, you know, and I even had it a little bit in college, um, I got like a little jaded with like the industry to this extent very quickly, because I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm seeing like these huge movies that are coming out now and i like them but like you know i prefer like you know some mid-tier level movies you know and i think back to it's like you know back to the future which you can see i have the poster over my shoulder still favorite movie um you know made like 180 million i think you know like box office when first came out and that was like the biggest movie of the year and it's like studios would be ripping their hair out now if that's what um their movies made and it's like, you know, it's a thing that I'm just like depressed at. That's like, they all want the big tentpole movie. And that's what they divert most of their resources to. And you know, as much as I love the Avengers, it's like, I'd like to see a couple mid-tier movies come out um, from every studio. So I got like a little jaded. Um, love watching like stuff like Red Letter Media and all that to, you know, make fun of um, movies and bad stuff and whatnot. And that kind of started influencing my um, desire to do the channel. So... Technically speaking, if you look on our channel, the first ever video was a commentary track for Spider-Man. Came out in um, January of 2020. Little known secret, that's not actually our first episode. Um, the first episode came on my original YouTube channel, um, AWAS Productions, that like, if you look it up now, there's really just, you know, nothing has been uploaded in a long time. It's just my old short films from college and high school. But I thought, got the idea to do this and you know, just doing commentary tracks and uh, for movies was what we initially did, me and my friends did. And we did one in October of 2019 for um, Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. It's one of my favorite, you know, Halloween kids movies. Grew up watching it and my um, usual co-hosts also loved it. So we decided, let's do a commentary track for it. It's Halloween time. They were just doing like a sequel to um, 
you know, called Return to Zombie Island that fall. I'm like, yeah, maybe I'll get a few clicks. And we were not taking it seriously. Like, we just literally put a laptop on, like, a chair in front of us, like, just recording using QuickTime. We didn't even have a, t- I didn't even have a title for the channel at the time. We just, like, introduced ourselves saying we're doing a commentary. So, but yeah, we um, did it for Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. It was not supposed to be too serious. We were just kind of just like, hey, there's the sequel that's coming out. Um, it's Halloween time. Let's do it. And we were drunk when we were doing it. We, we just wanted to have fun. So we're like really goofing around. And there exists like bloopers of like 30 minutes because we had to keep starting it over because we kept like spilling stuff and like, you know, uh, screwing up or like whatever this that like we had to start the movie like two times over. <laughs> Um, and that, you know, which says something because that's a short movie. Um, but, you know, we finally got it up and started getting some views. And I did a handful of other commentaries. And then I decided, you know, in 2020 um, to like, you know, really start investing into it. So I got microphones, I got an audio recorder, you know, um, you know, I guess that's all I got at the time. Uh, but yeah, I got those at least. And then um, a few years ago, I had thought of a different idea for a web show that um was basically it was gonna be the premise it was um the two co-hosts i usually have and another friend um the premise was going to be each episode one of us would pick a movie that the other three had not seen and based solely on the title of the movie and the poster they would have to try and guess what the movie was about and then we were going to kind of red letter media it you know best of the worst watch the movie and it would just like show some of the movie and then we'd talk about it we'd be riffing over it and it would be cut down. So if the movie's an hour and a half, it'd be like 15 minutes of that and maybe 20 minutes of us discussing it. And I was the first one to go because it was my idea. And I picked um, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. It was like a shitty TV movie they made like in the 70s years after the show ended. And I picked it because I loved the show. Um, I'd seen it a bunch of times. They had not seen it. Um, and the three of them had different relationships with the show. One had never watched it, one knew of it, and one really knew nothing about it. So I'm like, oh, that'll be good comedy. But we realized when two of the people have never watched said show, and two of us have, and we're making joke references to the show, and they don't get it, like it was like pulling teeth. So that exists somewhere on a hard drive, never to be seen again. Um, but so I had came up with that idea you know second rate film school and I'm like okay well I'll just start putting it up here and um yeah during the majority of the pandemic we were just doing more commentary tracks and then I kind of came to the realization hey you know my favorite creators are probably sitting around doing nothing in quarantine too so let me start reaching out to them and I you know was reaching out to people via their agents using IMDb Pro I got an account for that um, and then, you know, like some people I was just like reaching out to on social media and our first big get was, um, Eduardo Sanchez, co-director of the Blair Witch Project. Um, and that's really what kind of got things started for us. Yeah, very interesting. That's, uh, inter- interesting to hear. Absolutely. Cause, uh, you know, it all kind of starts small and then grows from there, obviously with these things. So Eduardo Sanchez, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, quite a big achievement he is a very uh, creative individual so you interviewed him or did the commentary on the film with him first uh, how did that go yeah I just reached out to him and yeah because again at the time it was like commentary tracks commentary tracks that's all I'm ever gonna do and you know to be fair they are a lot easier to edit because I just put a you know the image of the thumbnail up and tell you here's how you sync it up and that's about it so I initially thought, okay, well, let's do a commentary track. And, you know, it was a little difficult because, you know, if you have the DVD or Blu-ray, they did a commentary track 20 years ago. But I viewed it as, okay, this is now, let's look back at your movie 20 plus years on. And if you listen to the original commentary, they never flat out say the Blair Witch mythology was real, but they don't say it's not real either. Um, they give the implication, all the actors, you know, that they're like Heather, Josh, and Mike are interviewing in the first part of the movie um, are real people. They don't say, oh yeah, I knew this person from this thing, or we hired these people and stuff like that. So the implication is kind of like, hey, the Blair Witch mythology is real. So I'm like, okay, now it's interesting to look on this as a unofficial, not studio release where you gotta be, you know, not politically correct, but um, yeah, you don't need to be as you know 
polished as the studio would want you to you could like you know he could talk about like wow the sequel really sucked and you know we didn't like that because you know this isn't being you know it's not like artisan at the time was paying to do this so they, they have to be nice about it so he could be a little bit more frank and then yeah I thought that was interesting looking back 20 years on and then I'm like okay well you know there's a lot of stuff that's not about movies specifically we can't talk about during so let's just yeah do a basic Q&A and you know I always sum it up as I've just kind of stupided my way into getting more people because that then turned into oh, I'm posting about this on the Blair Witch, you know, um, you know, Facebook page. And, you know, Ben Rock, who's the production designer, is then like, you know, hey, I, you know, all that information is going to be wrong. Ha, ha, ha. I could tell the real story. And I'm like, well, do you want to come on? He's like, yeah, sure, why not? And then, you know, that turns into, you know, I get connected to Matt Blasey, who was like the, you know, Blair Witch Project guru. He, like, literally wrote the book on it. So it's like, you know, I've kind of become friends with him as well and you know we did a video about the comic book and the you know um me and him and ben did a commentary for book of shadows and you know you get connected through that and it's the same thing with a lot of the other people i've interviewed once i get my foot in the door with one person that kind of just stumbles onto the other people so like for instance i interviewed gary trailsdale who um was the director of beauty and the beast hunchback notre dame and atlantis lost empire and there have been several people who I've approached subsequently who I always like send a handful of links. I'll usually send like the Blair Witch one, that, and one or two other ones to like give them an idea what the channel's like. And yeah, people will be like, oh, you know, I love Gary. I, you know, he's a good friend of mine. So like it kind of then's like, oh, well, if this person has given you the seal of approval, then I'll agree to go on with you. So and it just, you know, keeps going on like that. Yeah, and I think that's just, you know, a brilliant bit of uh, advice for people who are, you know, trying to do interviews as well uh, on podcasts, on YouTube channels, etc. Um, web series, all that kind of thing. Um, so it sounds like, you know, confidence is maybe one of the big things to actually get a project like that going. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, 100%, because the worst these people can do is say no. You know, I've always been hesitant to, like, live tweet at somebody because i don't want to like be seen like by like you know oh, you know this hasn't happened but you know just you know i never did this with this person but like pat nozzle let's say like that I, like i tweet i'm like hey pat you want to come on my show and then a million people who follow him see that potentially and nothing causes of it so i'm a little worried with embarrassment sometimes with that but um yeah like emailing agents like it i like you know, I email like A-list stars agents and like, you know, they'll usually turn me down still, but, um, you know, it's still impressive that I get like an agent to be like, oh, well, let me go ask them. Like, I wanted to like do a commentary track for the birds. So it's like, I emailed like Tippi Hendren's like agent because she's still like alive. And like, I got like an email back because I had to go through like three different people. And I got like an email reply from like the third person. So it's like, this got passed on to like multiple different people or connect her and you know she turned it down you know because yeah she's like 90 years old so like you know i don't blame her but um yeah it's like you know these people are willing to like at least look into it sometimes for you so you um you never know and then i think a lot of the people i ask um to talk to are just very much also just very cool casual people you know they're like yeah sure like whatever you know you oh you want to talk about the thing i did like 20 years ago you know and all that yeah we'll do that um the crybaby lane people um especially were like oh wow like you know we moved on this from decades ago um but we were really proud of this and you know nickelodeon kind of screwed us over so yeah we'd love to tell like the true story about this so it's just like yeah i, I think you gotta pick the right people have the right level of confidence in it and then you know just kind of go for broke yeah yeah exactly exactly and um i listened to your uh oral history on crybaby lane uh fascinating stuff and it kind of uh you know leads me to ask you the importance of like you know i guess production history you know people reading about it knowing about it uh I mean, importance, I don't know, is that always the right word, but just, you know, the sheer interest that can be gleaned from that. Would you um, say, yeah, I mean, like, would you say that basically it's, um, do more people need to read more, or listen more to, like, you know, histories of how films are made? I would say yes. Um, you know, I um, 
really grew up on the home video DVD um, boom. So I loved watching all this special features, loved watching or listening to the commentaries because I always thought it was fascinating. It's like, you know, getting the peek behind the curtain of how my favorite TV show or movie was created. And, you know, that helped me in terms of filmmaking. So like they talk about like, oh, this was difficult to write or like they explain how this was shot, you know, so that's like, they explain like, okay, well, we shot it like this in two different pieces and we stitched that together. That like helped me learn how filmmaking worked. Um, in terms of like, you know, kind of like oral histories with the production, I think, yeah, especially with um, a lot of more obscure things. Cause that's the thing I've decided like, Early on, I'm only going to talk about a big mainstream recent release if I feel like I have anything to talk about that. So if you like look on our channel, it's like, you know, I've only talked about a handful of modern things, you know, like the Batman, the new Scream movie, uh, Better Call Saul. And that's because those are properties that mean a lot to me. Um, but yeah, I think this stuff like, you know, Cry Baby Lane is the perfect example. That's a movie where there's virtually no information out there about it. Um, and that's like kind of the frustrating thing with, you know, I'm a little sad how sluggish the view count on that one is, is because I don't think I'm being too braggadocious here, but it's like, I think I have the definitive history of that video. Because if you look up any other video history on it, they all have the same like three factoids from like IMDb. It premiered in 2000. It was scary. And then they banned it. People found it on Reddit and then they re-aired it. And that's like about it. So it's like, you know, very fascinating to be like able to connect to, you know, the, um, the guys, you know, Peter Lauer, Bob, and, you know, uh, John Inwood um, to talk to them about this little known Nickelodeon movie that had just a lot of, you know, mystery around it and be like, oh, here's how it was actually really made. Here's all the crazy bullshit they had to put up with, you know, making this Nickelodeon movie that had its budget continuously slashed. And then, you know, like try and actually deconstruct like, hey, why was this considered so scary? And, you know, in that I, you know, compare it to other things Nickelodeon was airing at the time and, you know, kind of like really breaking down to the nuts and bolts of what this movie was. And um, yeah, I think that's a thing more people should learn how these movies are made. And um, I think it would help them enjoy the movies a little bit more. Um, I know some people don't like to see how the sausage is made as it were, but um, you know, I know it's, I think it's fascinating at least. And I know there are a lot of other people who find that fascinating too. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's subjective obviously, but uh, at least it's important for people to at least try it, I suppose, as such. So yeah, absolutely well said. And um, so in terms of then, uh, you know, Cry Baby Lane again, just, you know, being kind of lost media for quite a while. Um, are you interested in lost media, like other cases of lost media, that sort of thing? Yeah, it's just fascinating to me because, you know, I can't remember what, what the stat is, but it's like 70% of all, you know, U.S. movies made before 1929 are like lost or like something like that. And then you have lost media like that, which technically speaking, I don't think you can call a lot of the lost media our generation is interested in actually lost because it's somewhere in a vault on like hard drives or like beta cam tapes and like Disney's warehouse and they just don't care to um, re-air it. But like, I guess in the net result is the same. It's, you know, unviewable by the public at large. But yeah, I find it fascinating. You know, something like Crybaby Lane, for example, that's like, this was something that was put on one of the top children's networks that was in the homes of tens of millions of people nationwide in the states and god knows how many more around the world and yeah Nickelodeon's like oh we're never re-airing it and it's like oh my god like you can't find it because you need to find one person who recorded it on a VHS tape kept it for at the time 10 years to then figure out how to upload it to YouTube and it was just a very fascinating story because I remember looking for that when I was um, in high school because I as I say in the video remember seeing the trailer but being too scared to watch it so like, i remember that and being fascinating it's like it's something so tantalizingly close that we know nickelodeon has it somewhere they just don't want to release it so it's like you got to find it and yeah it's almost kind of like a national treasure-esque um, treasure hunt just you know with a lot lower stakes right yeah so um in terms of then like uh you know, so obviously, you know, Blair Witch Project commentary and all the other great interviews you've done on uh, Blair Witch Project and its 
lore uh, and the crybaby lay in oral history they're on uh, your channel and podcast second rate film school so i would encourage everyone to listen uh, and watch those so in terms of some other work you've done speaking of uh you know when you were younger you saw the trailer for crybaby lane do you kind of do you kind of get a sense of nostalgia for you know some other decades in the past because i mean i've seen those uh collections of like vintage kind of commercials and things like that that are on your uh, channel so like do you look back on those days when you were younger and some of the media you saw and uh feel kind of a strong sense of nostalgia um no um yeah for sure um you know the commercials you know i always joke that i'm sad that those are the best performing things on my channel but nostalgia sells um there's something in the sense of those there is something to be said about we hated watching those when we were growing up we we wanted to get back to the cartoons that we were watching um so it is fun seeing like oh yeah i remember these and you know a lot of times like these aren't very well preserved um but no, they are fun. Um, I do look back nostalgically at the like the 90s and 80s for pop culture because, you know, I grew up um, latter half of the 90s. I was really young, mostly came into it in the 2000s. But I was growing up on reruns of a lot of those old Nickelodeon shows and Disney shows. Um, I do look back at them nostalgically. I will say I do watch mostly like old reruns of like shows, even from like the 60s and 50s, like before I was born, because um, I like them better. Um, but I think I have a healthy level of detachment from them. Yes, do I have the Back to the Future poster behind me, but I don't watch that movie like five times a month type um, level obsession with the past. Um, but yeah, no, I think it influences me certainly because obviously I'm talking about you know, movies and TV shows um, I grew up with a lot of times. And, but even then, some of the times, like, you know, Blair Witch Project, I didn't watch that until I was in college. That's only been a staple of my, like, you know, movie um, love, you know, for like 10 years now. Not, no, not even 10 years, like six years now. Um, seven, six or seven years, um, you know. Same thing with, I've interviewed several members of the cast of Newhart. Um, didn't watch that show till very recently. So sometimes it's just, whatever the hell I'm interested in at a given time and other times like yeah I do remember those weird McDonald's um, VHS tapes let me talk about that for like an hour yeah yeah I see what you mean right so um so it's good there isn't like a rigid kind of like you know no this podcast is about this it's kind of like you know you have broad kind of interest in various things you're willing to explore various topics that's good and so in terms of then you know um some of the other commentaries you've done and some of the other films media that you've done what other things have uh you and your friends done commentaries on what other movies for instance um yeah we've done thematic months you know like christmas movies and halloween movies because those are my two favorite times of year you know like once i get from october 1st to december 31st that's like my favorite time of the year to watch stuff so it's very easy to be like oh i gotta talk about the wolfman oh i gotta talk about you know, uh, the Blair Witch Project or Halloween or Scream. Um, you know, we did the Spider-Man, Raimi Spider-Man movies. We love those movies. So it basically is just like, do we have a movie or media that we like that we could talk about for like the two hour commentary on? And, you know, we always weren't, we always tried. We didn't always succeed at it of not just parroting back, you know, like factoids about it and be like, oh, this was fascinating. You know, like what we, already knew from the director's commentary but we would always try and talk about like why we thought the story worked personally or why we thought the story didn't work um so yeah that was the thing where numerous times we would pitch stuff to each other and it's like eh, i don't know if we could do that you know famously uh, we've done commentaries for three of the bionicle movies which those are some of my favorite ones because i never played with them never watched them my um, co-host Jake did a little and then the other co-host Jacob was obsessed with it so like okay this is kind of interesting going in blind to these movies only watching them once but I was still willing to do it because even watching the movie one time prior to it, I'm like oh this is fascinating let's talk about this and basically as long as it's in an interesting movie that I think I could talk about for like an hour and a half and they can talk about for an hour and a half we're game to do it yeah yeah Exactly. Uh, very good. So in terms of then, um, you know, would you, would you be interested at all in kind of the academic study of film? Uh, would you even be in, interested ever in exploring that through your podcast, uh, you know, kind of analysis of, you know, film and other media thematically or? 
What do you think? To an extent, yes. I mean, the joke name of our channel, Secondary Film School, came from, um, I think in the first few videos I described it as all the fun of um, college without the, accredit the credits um, and the actual usable degree. Um, that, yeah, we try and look at it in a fun way. You know, I did have a bunch of film theory classes when I was in film school, and sometimes they were very interesting. Other times they bored me to tears, and I'm like, oh my God, you know, like, I think what summed it up for me was, um, you know, far because I'm a very straightforward, I like, you know, typical narrative movies. I'm not, you know, into like, as a, you know, I call it artsy fartsy stuff um, too much. I can respect it, but I'm just not into it. And I realized a lot of like film school, um, you know, like discussions about it, uh, movies got into like the ethereal side of things. And like, I was like looking at this and being like, well, no, that's not clearly what it was. The two examples I think that exemplify that are um, my freshman year of college, we were watching Singing in the Rain and our professor talks about how that was like the original jukebox musical, which, you know, for people who don't know what that term is, that's a movie or musical where the music already existed. It was not written specifically for it. So I think people usually think of like, you know, like um, the Rocket Man, Elton John movie, or, you know, or um, Moulin Rouge. So these were all songs that had previously existed in the studio's catalog. And then the, you know, writers like, okay, hey, let's use this song here. You know, okay, hey, they're, they've done this all night. So, hey, this song called Good Morning, this works here. And, you know, he's happy, oh, singing in the rain, you know, and all that. Um, so she tells us this, and then she goes into how the movie was, was staunchly um, staunchly um, blacklisting. And because she talked about how um, the director was going through some problems. And she's like, that's what the song I'm singing in the rain is about. She's like, you know, he's going through all these things, but he's staying happy and he's making his movie. And I said, but you told us that song already existed. Like that, like none of that symbolism could have been intentional though. And she got very mad at me. And I um, did not talk for the rest of the class. And then, you know, fast forward next year, um, my student film was a parody of It's a Wonderful Life, where, you know, it, uh, no one's ever done this before, but, um, you know, where it turns out the guy, you know, the world would be better off without the guy. You know, I know it's very cliche now, but I still like it. But, um, you know, I just, like, it was a venue for just stupid jokes for me to put into it, basically, you know, just like, how ridiculously better off is the world without like this one guy so it, it got to like the level that cancer was being cured and like you know yeah you know, his childhood dog lived and like it was just like all like you know just little bs things like you know he gave a joint to his like college friend who like became a drug addict who he would have cured cancer he had not done that he gave candy to the dog so the dog would still be alive and like just the world is dramatically better and it ends with the angel and then the devil are like fighting over whether he should kill himself or not so the devil wants him to stay alive because he's like i'm having a lot less fun without you being here and the angel's like trying to get him to kill himself and i just parodied the line from it's a wonderful life where in the movie it says you know no man is a failure if he has friends and we make fun of that earlier in the movie and the angel just flat out contradicts what he said earlier and you know, it was just supposed to be a funny joke how like quickly this guy has gone from you need to stay alive stay alive to please for the love of god kill yourself and like all my film student classmates were like oh wow this is a staunch anti-catholic movie you know or the, this is you know really sticking to organized religion I'm like no it's just a supposed to be a funny joke that like the angels now trying to convince him to kill himself that that's the opposite of the movie so you know long way of saying i kind of thought a lot of film analysis can be bs at times um, so I more was interested in, as we've established, you know, the actual history of the making of it. So not really talking about the why of the film, um, you know, existing more of the how it exists. Um, yeah, I am not completely opposed to talking about like morals and like what a story means, but, um, it's always been secondary to telling a good story and, you know, to, on the channel, talking about the technicals of it yeah yeah i see what you mean um so for people then who would be interested in making films um i suppose you know before we 
hear some of your advice on that, uh, which we've hinted at just there. What sort of, um, you know, what, what other things have you worked on over the years? Um, okay, so I, that's the one thing I will say first off, if you're going to film school or whatever, don't always try and make your own movie. In retrospect, I don't know which one of the movies I made, I, and we'll get into them, um, I would have chose not to make. But I think I got so into the weeds of, I have to write this and then direct this. I feel like, oh, I could have should have done like sound or lighting on someone else's first semester because or two, because that would have allowed me to learn more of the technicals. Um, so advice right there. Um, I mean, I don't think there's any wrong way for you to make a movie. You know, and that was what annoyed me with some of my film professors and classmates were. Um, and I think this is true of film criticism in general now is it's less of the story you are telling is flawed because X, Y, and Z. It's more, I think this movie is flawed because I would have preferred it to be a different story. So um, the best example I could give of that was in senior year of college, my thesis was um, a drama about um, a true story about the attack on Pearl Harbor during World War II, where um, three sailors were trapped in an airtight compartment on the USS West Virginia and they were trapped down there for 16 days um, because we know that because when they were found there was a calendar marking up to Christmas Day so 16 days plus December 7th gets you to Christmas Eve at least and I decided to make you know like okay I wanted this to be a slice of pre-war America and it was going to explore the three reasons why some of these guys would have joined the military at a time when the arrogance of America or the naivete of America thinking hey, we're so far away from the Nazis, we're so far away from the Japanese, we're safe. So it was looking at it from the angle of the guy who just is looking at this as a paycheck. He's like, I can get out of our town where there's no jobs, save up some money and you know have a better life when I get out. The guy who wanted to join because his father served in World War I. And then the other one who looks as it as a sense of adventure that he's never been out of his hometown. I was just wondering, how did you get that Navy ship if, if it was a real Navy ship from the 1940s, like, I mean, the kind of a, you know, uh, uh, sort of a, in a museum or something, I don't know. Um, how did you, how were you able to film there? Because it was just so realistic looking. Don't worry about it. Um, no, um, that comes from, you know, look to see what you have access to. So yes, that was shot aboard a real um, naval ship from World War II. It was the um, USS Little Rock. Um, I'm from Buffalo, New York originally, and um, they have two ships up there, the Little Rock and then the Sullivans, named after the Sullivan brothers, who people might know were the, loosely the inspiration for Saving Private Ryan, um, or one of them. Um, and they um, have those museum ships up there, and I you know, remember going to them sporadically as I was a kid. They, you know, they're right down by the waterfront, right by um, where the hockey arena for the Buffalo Sabres are. So anytime I went to a hockey game, I would see these giant ships there. So I had heard this story a couple of years prior. I think I was a sophomore in college when I first read the story, so I had always had it kicking around in my head. And I decided this is the year I'm going to do a drama, because all the previous movies I had done were comedies. Um, which that went over very well when I had to pitch it in class because I said, oh yeah, I want to do a movie about Pearl Harbor. And everyone's like, you can't make a comedy about that. Like, guys, no, no, don't worry, it'll be fine. Um, yeah, I agree, I can't make a comedy about that, but you've little faith, I can do more than one thing. Um, so I just like literally Googled the website's um, number and just like called and be like, who would I talk to about filming on here? And initially they were a little kind of like, what you want to come here and film the ghosts because like apparently that's what they get the majority of supposedly the ships are haunted and you know like they were saying we will we don't really usually allow people to film on here we're not really interested in that i'm like well can i um come in and meet with um the executive director you know and i was being very respectful and you know i knew who he was because it was on the site and you know he was um you know military from probably like Korea era to like the Vietnam War era you know so he's been around for a while and you know I um, got I put my suit on to appear respectful and all that you know I came in and I um, you know made sure to address him by his military rank which was on the website and all that so I was being very respectful and I just kind of laid out here's what I would like to do here's the story and you know basically everything I said to you know you in the audience 
this is what I'm trying to do. And I was being, you know, very respectful of the military, which he appreciated. So he's like, yeah, we'll let you film there. And we had like free run of the ship. Like we were in parts of the ship that like people who hadn't worked there in years had been um, into, because, you know, like you're not going into every compartment of the ship. So they're like, I sent them like a list of here's the rooms we're looking for. And they're like, okay, you can go here for the long hallway. When you need a door that's a hatch that can close, we have this one that's still usable. And then this will work for you to come down the stairs to the engine room. So and it was just kind of like they allowed us to have free reign for like two days of it. And um, yeah, no, that's the thing I'm the most proud of that I got to film it there. Um, if they had turned me down, I would have just done a different movie. I don't think I would have wanted to compromise the look of the movie um, to like lost that set piece. I mean, and because, you know, and there's, certain realities of it's not a hundred percent accurate if you look at the actors haircuts they're probably a little longer than regulation would have been for the navy back then but like they're unpaid actor friends of mine um one of which actually is is now like a pretty decent sized actor he just like started like in a lifetime movie of the week so you know good on him i gave him his start um but like you know there were certain realities of like, okay, yeah, I'm not going to find the exact type of, you know, underwear the guys were. I'm going to find it close enough and stuff like that. But like, I didn't want to compromise on the location. And, you know, that's what I had to deal with, you know, for other projects, um, you know, just always trying to be as respectful as possible. Um, and, you know, yeah, they could have easily turned me down. Maybe they like, no, you're a college kid. We're not going to let you film here. Um, but you got to at least try. And it's like I said, when you, reach out to people to interview it's just like you know just go for broke the worst they can do is say no very true very true so that's uh, an excellent bit of insight there absolutely who's the actor by the way who you mentioned um his name is alec nevin okay so, uh, very good so he was recently a lifetime a, a lifetime what was it uh movie of the month what was it movie of the week yeah you could, the week. he's the um main guy who um had like the watch that his mother um gave him that was um yeah so um yeah no i mean you know so like i said i i when i heard that I'm like hey yeah i i used him in um three of my five movies i made he um if you look through the rest of my movies you know i, I reuse my actors a lot because they were my friends and they agreed to it so he played the devil in the it's a wonderful life parody and he's the um star of a 50s themed comedy i did which um I mean, do you want me to continue talking about the other stuff I've made with this? With with these guys, yeah. Well, sure. I mean, and um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, you know, going backwards now, um, my junior year of college, I made a movie called The Gentleman's Guide to Wooing Women, which was very dangerously close and titled to A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, which is a big Broadway play. Um, I assuming that's why that video has so many views that people were trying to look up the play and they found me by accident, but I'll take it. Um, yeah, and that movie was a satire of, you know, I am very nostalgic for like 50s pop culture a lot, but I also acknowledge that like, yeah, you know, the 50s was a pretty screwed up time when you really like look past the veneer. So that was just a broad comedy of a guy trying to like, you know, date like this really cute cheerleader who he knows nothing about. And he overhears she loves the 50s. So he finds in his grandfather stuff, a dating handbook, a how-to handbook called The Gentleman's Guide to, you know, Wooing Women. And it's just like, the whole thing was, I want it to be terrible advice to show how, like, screwed up this decade was. And, like, you know, this guy's such a moron. He doesn't, like, understand. You know, it was like, oh, use terms of affection. But they were all, like, 50 slang. So, like, they, they're meaningless to people. And I, like, you know, I'm like, okay, could I just use swell and dial? Like, no, I need to find, like, obscure ones that people are really not going to know what the hell it means within the context of this. Um, yeah, it was just supposed to be funny. Like it was making fun of how like people got married at like 18 back then and all that. And like, you know, so he's proposing to her after like one date and all that. And, you know, the joke was like, yeah, we might get bombed by the Russians or you're gonna have to go fight in Korea. You know, you might as well get this out of the way. And um, it was just like a really absurd screwball, um, you know, comedy. I broke the fourth wall and a lot like I, you know, borrow a gag from Mel Brooks where he gets turned down he's like wait and that's not supposed to happen he literally reads the script and like you know then like you know we have the actress saying this lines in unison with them of um you know like 
oh yeah, I'd love to go on the table. He quickly puts the script away and all that. So you know, a lot of my stuff was that. So it was like the It's a Wonderful Life thing. It was just big, broad parodies of things um, that I liked commenting on. You know, even though It's a Wonderful Life is my favorite movie, um, I wanted to like kind of poke fun at the idea that like for some reason, the heavens has, have opened and God has personally decided this one person who is going through some shit, we're going to help this guy, you know, and I find if I guess it's like, you know, that movie came out like right after World War II. It's like, hey, you know, you could have tried doing that, you know, for some other people, right, guys, you know, and all that. So, it was, you know, just like, okay, making fun. It's like, why is this guy so special? And then, you know, like, like I said earlier, it's like, you know, do the typical parody of the world being so much better off without him. That's like, you know, making fun like that, like the angel would now be pro-suicide because he sees, oh my God, the world is truly a paradise. Um, yeah, and, you know, just made like other goofy little short films. Um, you know, one was a comedy, one was a remake of an occurrence at um, Owl Creek Ridge, you know, which was a episode of The Twilight Zone, which was actually a short film they just bought the rights to. Um, and that's about it. You know, now it's just, I'm doing second rate film school and I occasionally get an idea for like to bother my friends and to like, Hey, let's make this short three minute sketch video. So it's like, I have like one um, that I'm working on right now about making fun of like an old Toys R Us commercial from the eighties. It's like, you know, no one has seen this commercial, but you know, I'm going to make a video that's taken multiple weeks and trips to stores to film at and all that, you know, sneaking into my office to, um, you know, film at, you know, for just like this stupid joke. And it's, you know, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. And, um, you know, it kind of reminds me of that quote. I think it was Oscar Wilde who said it like, uh, what was it? Something along the lines of uh, all art is inherently useless when you think about, you know, something like that. Um, I do not remember the exact quote, so apologies. But, um, you know, it kind of... Um, you know, reminds me of how, not that I'm saying your work is useless, obviously, I'm just saying that, you know, um, are you over? no, I mean, like, I just, I mean, not that at all. Yeah. I just mean that uh, when you think about it, filmmaking, writing, it's fun, right? So, you know, there's kind of the politicization that can happen sometimes where it's like, oh, you know, it's for a message or it's for, you know, um, a propaganda or something. But then there's kind of like at the end of the day, it's fun, you know, it's for entertainment. It's for not only entertainment uh, and artistic expression, but also, you know, it's fun making them. So would you agree with that whole general idea? Uh, all all art is inherently useless or, you know, whatever the quote was, or would you say there's, you know, political films, et cetera, are good or, you know, what what do you think or not good? What, what do you think? Um, all art besides mine is useless for sure. Um, no, yeah, I, I never heard that quote, but I do um, believe it. And I've, you know, used variations of it over the years because there's times where I'll see people will um, point to movies and TV shows they don't like. Um, and, you know, maybe for good reason, maybe it's a truly bad movie you know, or maybe it's a you know movie they just don't like. And they always say variations of, this money could have gone to cancer research or this money could have, you know, you know, think about all the money Waterworld could have done. Like that could have fed like a small, you know, like small village, you know, that's st starving or whatever for, you know, months. And, you know, yes, strictly speaking, that is true. Did the world need Waterworld? No. Could the, that money have gone to a lot more useful things in the end of the day? Sure. But I don't think anything doesn't really deserve to exist. Like the only art that I don't think deserves to exist is like, if it's like inherently trying to be like harmful, like, you know, like, like, you know, like, you know, like Nazi propaganda films from like the war, like that's, those are the ones I'll say, yeah, no, those, those should not exist. Like there's no inherent value to them and stuff like that. But like, yeah, I don't like the Transformers movies really, but I'm not going to be, you know, um, angry that like, the resources didn't go to something that technically speaking yes is you know more important because people enjoyed it in the end of the day um you know and i think that's important to do like you said it's inherently useless but it's fun yeah you're never going to be able to be fed by a movie but you'll have enjoyed it and i'll stick with you and there's actually um it's interesting you brought this up because i rewatched the movie recently um, there's this World War II um, drama that George Clooney directed a few years ago called The Monuments Men. Um, have you ever seen that? I've never seen it. I've heard of it, though. 
So yeah, it's a great movie, and it's about like the real life, you know, group of like artists, architects, and all that who were like sent behind um, German lines to try and find like the art the Nazis were stealing. And they show there's several great moments in there where you see like soldiers on the ground are like, you're telling me I can't fire at that building because there's a 300 year old sculpture in it. So I have to risk my guys getting killed. And it's like, you like, look at that when you describe it like that, it's like, oh my God, you're going to like have a bunch of like 20 year old guys die because something Michelangelo did like 200 years or more than 200 years ago, that 500 years ago is in there. That seems insane. But then at the same time, they sum it up as if you can kill, wipe out a generation of you know people, but we'll come back. We always can rebuild. But if you wipe out our culture, it's like we were never there to begin with. So that was like the whole point of that. Like they had to protect all of these great works of art. So yeah, am I going to try and compare Transformers 4 to like a work of art by Michelangelo? Probably not. Um, but I think that quote, you know, then that kind of idea does stand true. That's like, you know, this is what makes us us. This is what separates us from the animals, you know, that we create stories by fires of, you know, hunting water buffalo and mastodons originally. But now, you know, we're making, you know, big epic movies about, you know, superheroes, you know, going to space and fighting Thanos and stuff like that. Um, that it all has inherent value because it has fun. But yeah, strictly speaking, none of it is valuable. But, um, you know, you can't look at life like that. You can't look at like art and, you know, cinema like that, that like, we have to like, look at what we get out of this one for one. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well said. Um, And so in terms of then, you know, before we finish up, uh, you know, you've given great advice on filmmaking, people wanting to make films, as well as that, just, you know, content creation online. Um. You know, just what advice would you give to people who, you know, maybe want to start up a YouTube channel, uh, set up a podcast, uh, that kind of thing? Any advice at all? What would you give those people? Uh, don't do it. I don't need more competition. Um, <laughs> no, it's just find what you want to do and then like do it. So like, you know, you know, what's your niche? So, you know, mine is I like talking about the more technical side of stuff. I like focusing on you know, obscure stuff occasionally. So the crybaby lanes, the McDonald's videos, um, but then well-known stuff that I think I could talk about, like Blair Witch and all that. Um, and then, yeah, like I said, you know, reach out to people, you know, you reached out to me, you know, if I had said nothing, you, you I'm sure you would have been crying that I turned you down. No, <laughs> but like, you know, it wouldn't have like ruined your life had I turned you down. It wouldn't have ruined my life if, you know, any of the people I've interviewed have turned me down. Yeah. And, you know, you know, make sure you, you develop like a thick skin quickly because, you know, occasionally I'll see like negative comments on stuff I've made. And it's like, well, okay, you know, screw you, buddy. Like, you know, like whatever, I, but I move on and like, you know, acknowledge you're going to make mistakes and, you know, with this. So it's like, there's been times where um, I'm working on an interview for um, um, the show Courage the Cowardly Dog. And one of the um, writers I interviewed zoom screwed up and lost the audio recording like i hit stop recording and it just was lost so i had to you know beg him to come back on and luckily he was very agreeable and nice and he was like you know we all make mistakes that's what making art is you know you screw something up he's like how can i hold that against you and that's great but there's been other times where it's um and you can't go through my video list to ever try and find this because this is the lost episode of secondary film school that will never come out but like I screwed up one time because I was doing so many interviews and I was interviewing a filmmaker who um, we had changed the time multiple times. So I got my Google um, alert screwed up and I was 10 minutes late to interviewing him. And he was the angriest person I've ever seen in my entire life. And it was such a deeply uncomfortable interview that I was kind of almost trembling while we were doing because I was trying to salvage it. And like at the end of it, I, I realized I, I have to like just trash this because this guy like looks so pissed off while we're talking. And like, I look very nervous that this is going to come across like it's a hostage video. <laughs> like, I was like horrified and like, you know, yeah, you can't, you can't just blow up like, oh, whatever. I was late. Like you got to learn from it. So yeah, you know, damn well, I made four alerts to make sure I was on time today. Um, 
but at the same time, you can't be like, oh my God, that's going to keep me from ever working on something again. You know, and I've had multiple interviews since then, you know, with much um, bigger people, you know, much more gracious people and all that. And, you know, like, you know, you can't let one road bump of one like jerky uh, movie, you know, I'm not even going to say what profession they were in it to help narrow it down, um, you know, person to like, you know, ruin it for you. So, you know, like, you know, I can't imagine how many of the great interviews I've done post that. If I let that derail me, I wouldn't have gotten to do. So, you know, just keep doing it. And I think the biggest thing is do it on your own schedule. If you look at my channel, I haven't really done too many major things this year because I haven't felt too inspired to. I don't want to just like put out crap for crap's sake, you know, just to like, you know, put content out just to get content out. So it's like, yeah, I'm, you know, working on a couple videos I've got going now. So it's like, yeah, you know, we're going to go like 10 months without a major video on the channel. But like, you know, I think the video that's going to come up is a very good one. So, you know, I'd rather have there be a large gap in that, but it'd be very good at the end result versus I could try and reach out to 10 other people and just be like really stretching it here, trying to get them to, um, you know, say something good. And, you know, the video suck at the end. So if this interview sucks, just throw it away. Don't put it up on your channel. <laughs> well, I mean, it, you know, brilliant advice, uh, brilliant stories. So uh, I assure you this did not suck, sir, but very good. So, um, you know, excellent. And, uh, you know, I encourage everyone to visit Second Rate Film School. And uh, your website as well with your short films on it is uh, Andrew. How do you pronounce your surname? Andrew Wass Productions, is it? Wass, yeah. So Wass. Yeah, yeah, okay, so, so I would absolutely... Well, Wasp production. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would absolutely encourage everyone to check out your work on Second Rate Film School and uh, uh, your website as well. It's, uh, you know, just very good stuff, so thank you very much indeed. Um, anything you'd like to, you know, tease people with, your projects that you're working on, that kind of thing? Um, anything at all that you want people to look forward to? Or uh, you want to keep it quiet for now? Or, you know... Uh, like I said, we got the Courage Cowardly Dog video coming up. Um, I got a lot of cool people. We got the creator, some of the writers, and um, you know, we even got the voice actor from that coming up. And then as we get into Halloween, got some fun stuff planned, um, you know, and all that. Hopefully see some familiar faces returning to the uh, channel as guest stars again. But, you know, we'll see. You know, I got a bunch of stuff planned. You know, I'm, I'm starting to get inspired all at the same time that that's what happened last year. I got inspired to do a lot in October, got a little bit of burnout, but you know, it's a hell of a lot of fun when you're inspired to do something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Uh, and inspiration is key. So uh, thank you very much, sir. It's uh, been great talking to you and uh, have a good day. You too.